Nick? Nick? You there? Nick? Oh, Nick's not here. Um, I mean, I don't know. Is this something that can be done just with just one man? I don't know. Who's to say? I mean, it kind of makes me want to... So, uh, in case you didn't get the message there, Nick's not here this week. This week. Like, this is a weekly thing. Jesus Christ. This month, I guess. Uh, this is uh, at least partly my fault. We, uh, we were supposed to meet up a few days ago to, uh, to record a, a February podcast. And... Uh, well, I forgot, frankly. Got my dates mixed up. It didn't happen. He didn't contact me either, so I'm guessing he probably forgot as well. Which is just fucking brilliant, isn't it? Two dudes getting together to do a podcast forget to do the one thing that they're supposed to be doing. Well, you know. Um, I mean, you're not listening. You're not even there, so... I guess it doesn't matter. Nevertheless, I uh, vowed to myself took a solemn oath that this podcast would at least be a monthly endeavour. Uh, and so we were gonna miss we were in danger of missing February, so I thought, you know what? I'll go it alone. Just this once. Um and well we'll see how it goes. Maybe uh alone in the podding shed, maybe we'll become a semi-regular thing. I don't know. But We'll give it a go, won't we? So, I guess, in lieu of having any guests or uh, 50% of the uh, the Podding Shed team, I thought I'd maybe like to maybe go some lengths to properly introducing myself. Um, this could get very self-indulgent. Not that this podcast isn't anyway. Let's be honest. It's the internet. It's full of self-indulgent crap. This will be no different. That's basically what I'm saying. Um, the fact, I guess, if you're here, you're kind of liking what we're doing. 
so maybe you'll not care so much. But anyway, I thought I'd properly introduce myself. I am Sean, of course, of Nick and Sean. Or is it Sean and Nick? No, it's Nick and Sean. I don't know why you got there first. Alphabet, I guess. Yeah, makes sense. I guess what I what I, what I really want to talk about uh, in this episode is well, me, as I've said. Um, but something has occurred to me of late. Uh, I've been getting quite nostalgic. I've recently found out I'm going to be a dad. Um, it's made me start thinking back. Uh, it's not going to be all about me, you know, babies and shit. Don't worry. Don't worry. I mean, my life is going to be that. This podcast will not be, I promise. Even though Jackson somehow makes his way onto it every now and then. So, but yeah, it's not going to be that. But nevertheless, this is what's kind of spurred me on to want to uh, talk about what we're going to be talking about today. I've been getting a little bit nostalgic about uh, my past. Um... You know, in, in thinking about uh, the baby being on the way, it's made me start thinking a lot about my past. And uh, this kind of ties into something um, from last year, really. There was a bit of a... Those of you that, those of you that used uh, Twitter specifically, there was a bit of a social media... Uh, I don't know if I want to call it a craze, but something that happened on Twitter last year um, that I sort of... Uh, took part of. The idea was that you were to name your favourite film for every year that you have been alive. Right? Now, I'm sure a lot of people that did this on Twitter just sort of did it off the top of their head, really. Maybe didn't put that much thought into it. But, podheads, I took a lot of time and care with this. It's the kind of dude I am. I was born in 1983, uh, we're recording this in fact on the 20th of February, it's my birthday tomorrow, I was born on the 21st of February 1983, um, so I mean, that's quite a lot of films to get through really, 35 this year, so um, yeah, so I made the list, a lot of help from Wikipedia and IMDB. For some reason, I'm quite good at remembering years in terms of um, what happened, like in my own life, what happened, what year. I'm, I, can, I can usually nail it down to the year. Um, I'm pretty good at remembering what year a film was released, or you know, I'm a, I'm a music fan to an album or something. So I am quite good at that. Um, but I did need a little bit of help from uh, from the internet. And, uh, well, I'll, I suppose I'll start by reading the list to you. Um, and uh, before I point out what I, what I wanted to point out. God, I'm good with words. Right, here we go. So, 83, Return of the Jedi. 84, Ghostbusters. 85, Back to the Future. 86, Aliens. 87, Robocop. 88, Die Hard. 89, Back to the Future Part 2. 90, Goodfellas, 91, Terminator 2, 92, Reservoir Dogs, 93, Groundhog Day, that was a tough one, Groundhog Day or Jurassic Park, I'm probably in the minority by picking Groundhog Day there, but I fucking love Groundhog Day, 94, Pulp Fiction, 95, The Usual Suspects, 96, Fargo, 97, Gross Point Blank, 98, The Big Lebowski, 99, Fight Club, 
2000, Memento. 2001, Ocean's Eleven. 2002, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I imagine there'd be a few of you thinking, well, why isn't Lord of the Rings just winning three days in a row? Three years in a row, should I say. Uh, it's just not. All right, 2003, Finding Nemo. 2004, Team America, World Police. 2005, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, 06, Casino Royale. 07, The Bourne Ultimatum. 08, The Dark Knight. 09, Inglorious Bastards. 2010, Toy Story 3. 2011, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. 2012, Wreck-It Ralph. 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street. 2014, X-Men Days of Future Past. 2015, Jurassic World. 2016, Rogue One. Uh, 2017 is currently a tie between Blade Runner uh, 2049 and Thor Ragnarok. I've only seen both of those once. I've yet to pick a winner. Alright. Now, what occurred to me, now I look back on this list, I mean, you'll notice, I mean, the first thing I suppose I should say about the list is that it isn't necessarily what I felt was the best film at the time. You know, 1983, I wasn't making a lot of lists. You know, I I probably didn't see Return of the Jedi until, you know, a few years later. Maybe even not until the early 90s. I can't remember. Same with a lot of those earlier films. And, you know, a, a lot of the stuff, maybe back in 2001, The Fellowship of the Ring would have beaten Ocean's Eleven. It's not what you liked best at the time. It's what, out of those years what you like best now. That's the way I took it anyway. This list could change if I looked looked on it again in a year, ten years, whatever. It may very well change. Um, so, but nevertheless, what really kind of stood out to me here was in the 80s, it's a lot of blockbusters. Uh, you know, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, Aliens. Die Hard is probably the one that sticks out a little bit there, I guess. It's not sort of sci-fi or fantasy, but it is very much an action movie. Uh, the 90s, I guess, kind of a bit of a mix. A lot of cool indie stuff in the 90s. That's what was going on in 90s Hollywood. It was all Tarantino-y stuff, wasn't it? Sort of tongue-in-cheek, sort of comedic crime thrillers. A lot of that sort of thing. Um which is kind of what I want to talk about, really. The 2000s are a little bit more mixed, I guess. Um, quite a few action... surprising amount of just action movies, really, I suppose. Um, and then the 2010s, a lot of... with the exception of The Wolf of Wall Street, they're pretty much all sort of CGI-heavy blockbusters. And I guess that's what I want to say. I mean, I've heard it said that the the current decade we are in, the 2010s, is kind of the new 80s. A lot, of, a lot of similarities, I guess. I mean, I'm a big rock music fan. Um, and in sort of mainstream, sort of, certainly in the charts, rock music is non-existent in the UK pop charts this decade. Just non-existent. And it was said to be... Guitar-based music was said to be the same way in the 80s. Um, and then in, in Hollywood, a lot of... Um, a lot of franchises, a lot of big special effects heavy blockbusters are sort of permeating the box office, just like it was in the 80s. You know, um, the 70s in Hollywood was a big time for director-led 
um, sort of personal uh, movies, you know, personal to the director. This is where kind of the auteur theory um, sort of took over Hollywood. Um, and then as part of that, Spielberg came in with Jaws, George Lucas came in with Star Wars, and because of those, everything shifted over to, effectively, very big budget B-movies. You know, a lot of sci-fi, a lot of high-concept stuff. And that's what was going on in the 80s. It's that post-Jaws, post-Star Wars, family-friendly, blockbuster era, you know, of Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, all that sort of stuff. Um... Which is something that's kind of being repeated now. It's all it's all these big franchises. A lot of the filmmakers owe that owe a debt to seeing Star Wars for the first time, or are big. You know, J.J. Abrams is a big Spielberg fan. Things like that. Um, when you got to, I suppose the the kind of the peak of that kind of blockbuster stuff was really not necessarily the peak, but the there was a, a, a kind of a change um, in the early nineties when CGI really started to come in. You had Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, which, just like Jaws and Star Wars, were the big two of kicking off that era. Uh, T2 and uh, Jurassic Park were kind of... They were watershed moments in pretty much the same way, and blockbusters were never quite the same. There was a kind of a shonky charm to those 80s movies, in a way, with regard to the special effects. They just, They just kind of had a go, didn't they? You know, Industrial Light and Magic with a big company, a uh, big special effects company, and they, they just sort of had a go, and it didn't always work. But you kind of appreciated the effort a bit, I think. They were just fun, and they still are fun. A lot of those effects don't look good, necessarily, but they're fun. And then CGI kind of changed that. You know, I, I, I don't know if, this, if everybody would agree with this, but I would say that bad practical effects you know or just bad pre-CGI effects I kind of don't care doesn't ruin the film for me but bad CGI that can easily ruin the film that's what I think so I guess the thing with um, with the 90s Hollywood I don't know if it was just CGI that made the difference in I mean there still were blockbusters you know, you had a post-Jurassic Park. There was still a lot of big blockbusters. Independence Day, Titanic, um, the Star Wars prequels. Well, the first one was in the 90s. Men in Black. You know, Armageddon. Loads of stuff like that. Um, but in terms of what was going on, or what was also popular alongside that, you had this sort of cool indie, in inverted commas, scene that was really kicked off by Quentin Tarantino, by the success of um, of Pulp Fiction. Reservoir Dogs I, was popular enough to get him to be able to make Pulp Fiction, uh, but it wasn't like a big mainstream hit, but it was Pulp Fiction was massive. Wasn't truly indie, because it was made by Miramax Films, which at the time was owned by Disney. Nevertheless, it is known as a big... It's often described as the first indie movie to make $100 million at the box office. It was effectively a Disney movie. Um, so, make of that what you will. Um, 
but then nevertheless, nevertheless, it kicked off a massive resurgence in director-led indie movies, indie-style movies, you know, much like what happened in the 70s. Um, so you had Tarantino, you had the Coen brothers, um, became very popular uh, towards the latter part of the decade. You had the likes of Brian Singer, um, Christopher Nolan started his career around that time. Steven Soderbergh, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith. Um, not all sort of witty crime movies. A lot of them were. Um, but a lot of um, auteur films. Um, do I need to go back and talk about the auteur theory? Why not? Let's fill some time. So the auteur theory is the idea that a director um, is the author of the of the film you know he is the artist um much like a painter is the is the guy that paints the picture so it is or the author writes the book you know so it is said that the director is very much the creative in charge of the of the movie um in hollywood especially this was not always the case um in fact, going back to the golden age of Hollywood, so-called golden age, um, of the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, the producer was always in charge. The director was kind of seen as little more than a technician, really, just telling people what to do, which is basically the job of the director, tell people what to do uh, to match their vision, in inverted commas, not a, not a phrase I... Uh, particularly like, makes me cringe a bit, but there you go, um, a lot of talk in the media at the moment about how most directors are men, and some of these directors have maybe let their positions of power go to their head, and they've done some uh, not very nice things, and it's been suggested that we romanticise the director as this great artist, which is what the auteur theory did, really, um, the theory was um, devised, I guess, or popularised by a French magazine uh, called Cahiers du Cinéma. Um, this was back in the, I guess it must have been sort of the late 40s, early 50s. Some of the critics that worked for this magazine, um, names such as uh, Francois Truffaut and uh, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, would write about this stuff in, in the magazine. Um, and then, actually, themselves, those two names in particular, um, as well as others, who I cannot remember at this moment, started making their own movies. Um, and this sort of little sort of indie scene in France became known as the French New Wave. Um, again, they were telling very personal stories. Um, they were using... Um, they were kind of using cinematic technique that had already been established and sort of ignoring it at the same time. So you would have things like um, uh, jump cuts and, um, and and a lot of things like that. They would have these very kind of slow-burning character-led stories where plot wasn't necessarily as important as the character. Um, and this was seen as a bit of a... A revelation really um, and it led 
sort of in doubt accidentally, I suppose, to film being taught as a subject in American universities, such was its success. Um, and some of the first wave of, of these students studying film at these universities, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and the like. You know, so these guys went to university, learnt their craft, left. Um, a lot of them, including Scorsese, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, people like that, they went to work for Roger Corman, who was a, a B-movie director, who just let them do what the fuck they wanted, really, as long as they did it cheap. Um, which a lot of them, Scorsese included, says was like a secondary education. Uh as a filmmaker. Uh, Spielberg went to TV. Uh, Lucas sort of became... He went into documentary. He was making some uh, behind-the-scenes documentary for a Francis Ford Coppola film, and Coppola kind of championed him. Um, so then, they, they, you know, all this led to them getting their own opportunities to make these big films. Um, and so, we, so the 70s uh, New Hollywood era was born. Um, and the auteur theory ruled, really. And then I guess with the success of Jaws and Star Wars, this kind of led to... I'm not entirely sure how this happened, really, because Lucas and Spielberg were directors primarily, and the success of their films kind of led to certainly a change in what films were getting greenlit. It was these more high-concept, kind of B-movie things rather than these sort of personal dark stories. But quite how 80s Hollywood became quite so producer-led, I'm not entirely sure. I guess Lucas stepped away from directing and produced things. He produced the Star Wars uh, sequels and the Indiana Jones movies, and I guess Spielberg did quite a lot of producing as well. So I don't know if that had anything to do with that. Um, but then by the 90s... Uh, well, really by the sort of probably mid-80s, I mean, the Coen brothers started making movies then, so they kind of built up their reputation, which sort of peaked in the 90s. Um, Bob and Harvey Weinstein, if I may mention them, formed Miramax Films, um, started distri distributing a lot of indie movies, a lot of foreign language movies and things like that, before then moving into production themselves, which again sort of peaked in the 90s. Robert Redford formed the Sundance Institute and the Sundance Film Festival, which wasn't taken all that seriously in the 80s. It wasn't really until late 80s, early 90s where they, that really, they actually discovered some fresh talent in your Soderberghs and your Tarantinos. Um, so that's where that really came into its own and became sort of the respected festival that it is today. So that's what was going on in the... Uh, in the 90s. It was a bit of a throwback to the 70s in a way, much like I was saying that now, this decade, 2010s, is kind of a throwback to the 80s. So anyway, um, did you sign up for a history lesson? I mean, I <laughs> this is what got me thinking, really. Starting by looking at this list. We've got 80s blockbusters. We've got sort of 90s cool. 2000s is a bit more of a mix. And then 2010s is just pure blockbuster. I don't go to the cinema as much now 
as I did throughout the 2000s. Throughout the 2000s, I spent a few years working at a cinema. That's how Nick and I met, by the way. I don't know if that's been mentioned on the podcast before. Um, so I'd get um, free tickets. When I stopped working there, I got myself a Cineworld Unlimited card. And I easily went to the cinema weekly. I easily saw 52 films a year at the cinema for a good few years, latter half of the 2000s probably. And then that kind of gave way, I guess Love Film came in, so I swapped the Unlimited card for a Love Film account. Um, I mean, right, between a theatrical release of a film and its home release is usually about four months. When I gave up the Unlimited card in favour of Love Film, that first four months, that was tough. That was some tough shit. I was no longer up to date. I didn't know what was going on. I felt behind. It was it, that, um, that was the toughest four months of my life. And then all these films started coming out and I, I, I kind of got back on track. I was still kind of behind, but what's four months? It's nothing. You know, no wonder cinema's dying. You know what I mean? That's something I'd like to maybe discuss with somebody at some point, actually. Maybe get some people on the show to really discuss cinema and the new technologies and and all that stuff. There's been a few films, uh, or there are a few films coming out soon on Netflix that were planned for theatrical releases, like there was the, the recent Cloverfield film, The Cloverfield Paradox, um, although it turns out maybe that skipped cinemas because it was maybe not very good from what I've read. I've not seen it yet. Uh, Alex Garland's film, Annihilation, that's coming to Netflix soon. A lot of debate about whether this is a good thing for these films. I think it is, because I don't, I don't rate the cinema experience anymore. I've really gone off it. I think if you've if you've got yourself a decent home cinema set up, why would you go to the cinema for the uncomfortable seats and the dickheads on the phones the whole time, letting out this big lightsaber beam of light just distracting you? I mean, it's fucking horrible going to the cinema. I fucking hate it. Uh, but I love movies, so what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a debate for another time, anyway. Um, which, that segue being what it was, I've completely lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, Love Film. Love Film then gave way to Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that stuff. So, um, which, again, makes me lose my train of thought. Where was I going with that. Yeah, I don't go to the cinema as much, but when I do go to the cinema, it tends to be to, to see the big blockbusters. Now, for somebody that has a massive appreciation uh, for indie film, that seems like a little bit of backwards logic. Surely I should go and see the indie movies to support them. Yes, I agree with that. However, the only reason I can see to go to see a film at the cinema these days is quite simply to avoid spoilers. I spend an awful lot of time on the internet. I've got my own podcast. Of course I do. So it's difficult to avoid spoilers. Black Panther came out last week. Um, and I kind of don't want to have to go watch it because I don't want to have to step foot in the fucking cinema. But 
it's going to be spoiled for me. You know, the post-credit scenes that link it to Infinity War are going to be ruined for me if I try and wait. I've seen most of the Marvel movies in the cinema. I kind of I took 2016 off. So Civil War and uh, Doctor Strange, I didn't see. Fucking killed me. I don't know how I did it. I did suffer with a bit of depression that year. Maybe that's why. I don't know. So really, I'm gonna I'm gonna go watch it. I'm gonna wait for it to quiet down a little bit. We're uh, we're in kids half term at the moment. I'm not going in half term. I'm not a fucking idiot. Yeah. No. Yeah, so I'll end up going to watch that. I'll probably end up watching Infinity War. There's the Han Solo movie. I mean, it is backwards. I should. I I wanted to go and see the um, three billboards outside Ebbin, Missouri. Missed it. I, I quite fancy The Shape of Water. I could still go see that, I guess. You know. Missed opportunities. They're the things we regret. Four months, it'll not matter. So much cheaper to rent them on Amazon. Isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. I've lost my train of thought again. This is where Nick comes in Andy. When I'm when I get lost, he can do some talking. Uh maybe I'll edit him in or something. I've got plenty of audio files of his voice. Yeah, I could do that. So yeah, I go I go to see the blockbusters mainly. And uh, and I guess Really, for the last, maybe not for the last decade, but for sort of most of this decade, um, I guess my love of film, my sort of uh, dream and ambition of being involved in film, being a filmmaker, have kind of gone on the back burner. I just, I, I assumed I was getting older, getting more downtrodden by life, you know. I mean, Jesus Christ, I've got a baby coming, that's not going to get any easier, is it? But then what I've come to realise by looking at this list is that maybe it's the blockbusters, maybe it's the diet of blockbusters that's sort of made me lose my passion a little bit. I mean, listen, I'm not a snob. I love these movies. To me, they're like a summer blockbuster, a big sci-fi CGI extravaganza. It's like a big, beautiful fucking cheesecake, right? It's a dessert. It's a sugar rush. But a nice, a, you know, a good indie movie, a good, a, a good drama about people dealing with things, you know, and getting it wrong and fucking up, and but then. Learning that that's not what life's about. And then dying alone horribly. That is steak and chips with some mac and cheese on the side. That's, that's your sustenance, yeah? That's, that's, what, that's the difference, I think. There's a debate within the kind of... Uh, in, in movie fandom these days... You know, it's kind of, hey, what do you like? Do you like, you know, Michael Haneke? Or do you like J.J. Abrams? You know, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner's a bad choice. It's 
terrible, terrible filmmaker. But you, you know what I'm saying. What do you like? Do you like a, a black and white Russian language four hour long movie about some depression? Or some depression. <laughs> some depression. Or do you like it where superheroes beat the shit out of each other in 3D? And, you know, I say, well, actually, friend, can I not enjoy both? Yes, actually, I am capable of doing that. And I do do that. But, it's all about moderation. It is. It's like a diet. Don't just watch the Transformers movies. In fact, now that Nick's not here, I will say do not watch the Transformers movies. That's unfair. Nick doesn't like the Transformers movies. He fucking loves Transformers, though. That's for sure. Huh, does he? Say what you want about Nick, but he fucking loves Transformers. Who am I to talk? I'm a lifelong WWE fan. What have I got to say about it? Nothing. That's what. But, but don't just watch that, you know? Don't just watch the Fast and Furious series, which I love, by the way. You know, make sure you do watch Manchester by the Sea as well. Or, you know, um, The Post. Or The Shape of Water. Or... I mean, I am talking in purely in Hollywood terms here. I realise that. There'll be, maybe be people listening going, oh, what, you only like films where they talk in English? Like, well, no. Uh, but I've really got to be in the mood for a foreign language film. I watched Old Boy recently. I've been meaning to watch that for, like, 15 years, and I fucking loved it. But uh, that's by the by, really. I think what I'm trying to say is that... I don't know what did it for me really, but something, made, probably just looking at this list and it made me kind of start looking um, at, you know, your Tarantinos and your Coens. Tarantino's getting a bad rap at the moment. It breaks my heart. It doesn't surprise me that he's a bit of a douche, but, you know, it still breaks my heart. But it's got me thinking about all that, you know, my influences really, the, the guys that influenced me in the first place. Maybe I've kind of forsaken them a little bit, sort of them and their ilk, you know, the ones that have followed them, like, you know, your Martin McDonough's, your Guillermo del Toro's, um, whoever else the indie darlings are, Ben Wheatley, what have you. Um, and maybe, I sh maybe that's who I need to concentrate on again. So, I mean, I have been doing. I mentioned Manchester by the Sea. I watched that recently. I watched Moonlight. Um, what else did I watch? I watched Lady Macbeth. I didn't really like that, I've got to say. Uh, I just watched Fruitvale Station. The Iceman. Um, I rewatched The Master. That was an interesting one. Paul Thomas Anderson, he's another one. I've been a fan of his since Boogie Nights. Um, didn't think much of Magnolia, I've got to say. That's said to be one of his big ones. Not a big fan of that. It's a bit emo, isn't it? You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, but I love There Will Be Blood. And then after that, There Will Be Blood was kind of the, the one of the bigger hits for him. Um, 
And then he followed that up with The Master, which I watched. I didn't see it in the cinema. I probably saw a, again, maybe it was a love film one or something, you know, when it came available to rent or whatever. And I didn't like it. Um, but it's one of those where I kind of, I didn't like it, but I sort of wanted to re-watch it. I felt that maybe I missed something. So uh, it was on TV recently. His new movie, Phantom Threads, out in cinemas. I guess that's probably why it was on. Um, and I really fucking loved it. I thought it was tremendous. And so I'm wondering, I mean, that movie came out in 2012, so I guess I probably saw it in 2013 as a guess. Um, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street was my film of 2013, incidentally. Wreck-It Ralph was my film of 2012, which maybe tells you where I was at at the time. Wolf of Wall Street was a bit of a blip, I think. Uh, no, I mean, great film, I don't mean it's not, but, you know, in terms of... It sticks out like a sore thumb for this decade, really. Um... So, you know, to show you where I was at, you know, it was Wreck-It Ralph, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, X-Men Days of Future Past, all around that time. Kind of shows you where I was, what I was into at that time. So maybe the master just... just what, just was where I was at the time. It just wasn't floating my boat at that time. Now, now that I'm kind of having this existential crisis, it's kind of made me go back and... And remember what I fell in love with in the first place about about film, and uh, so yeah, just appreciated it a lot more. I want to rewatch Inherent Vice as well. That was uh, Anderson's subsequent film. Um, that was another one that I sort of I just remember it being really long. You know. So yeah, I want to revisit that one as well because that's more my thing. A stoner detective, yeah, yes, please, baby. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to say, really. No, no, I was going to wrap things up there. I'm not going to, no. I mean, by all means, leave. You could have left at any time. But uh, I suppose a little bit more a little bit more context here. I mean, I, I studied film at, uh, at college and then at university, film and TV production. And what I learned, particularly at... Uh, at university I specialised in screenwriting there and I guess what I learned really about myself there, cause I, of course I wanted to go in there and learn how to be the big writer, producer, director guy you know, I wanted to be Tarantino I wanted to be Brian Singer they're really bad examples of the kind of person I wanted to be I'm talking in a purely professional manner. Um, I don't even know if that's a funny joke or not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Nick would have laughed if it had got it. Jesus. Um, anyway, yeah, we. Um, so yeah, I went to. Uh, th that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the writer, producer, director, and I learned very quickly that I'm simply not. I'm not confident enough, I don't think, um, to be a director, you do have to have a lot of self-assuredness, you've got to be able to go into a room, be in charge, say, this is my story, I know how to tell it, 
better than anybody else possibly could. And this is how we are going to do it. You listen to me. I will listen to your opinions. Because I think a director should. You've hired creative people. Allow them to be creative. But ultimately, this is my show. This is what we're going to do. That's how you've got to be. And I don't... I just don't have that confidence to be able to walk into that room, be that way, and just have people kind of go, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. I'll follow this guy. That's what I learn about myself. Um, I also learned that writing... I, I, was, I was told that I had a little bit of a raw talent for it. I'm not going to come out here and say that I'm some kind of untapped genius. That's for others to say. But I was told that I did have some some talent, which I suppose, in a manner of speaking, isn't or shouldn't have been that much of a surprise to me. Because I always read and wrote as a child. I was always writing something. I just kind of... I once wrote... Um, Beetlejuice 2 in novel form it was awful I, it, it was awful but of course it was, I was a child I once wrote a sequel to Grease because I was very much in love with Olivia Newton-John at the time so I um, wrote this thing where I myself came in to ride El High and just out-cooled Danny Zuko and took Sandy from him um <laughs> Um, you know, because um, I am cooler than Danny Zuko. I am cooler than John Travolta. That's right. So I've always written, I've always had the sort of story ideas going around in my head. And when I first decided I wanted to make movies, when I was around 15 or 16, of course the first thing I learned is that it all starts with the script. So I would always be writing. I learned how to write a script, how to format it and everything. And my ideas never went any further than that because, well, it's like, now what? Now what do I do? Okay, we have the family camcorder. But, you know, we're, we're kind of just coming into the era of, um, of us all having a PC at home all just sort of getting the internet on dial-up. You know, these things just weren't, weren't as easy. You, you were just kind of bordering on the digital age really coming in. Um, but it was still really expensive. So, you know, what, what do you do? How do you even start this? I don't know. Robert Rodriguez would always put his 10-minute film schools on his DVDs. They were always... That was my first kind of um, introduction to behind-the-scenes stuff. DVD was coming out at the same time, so you had a lot of the bonus features on there, audio commentaries and things. Um, the Lord of the Rings DVDs were just priceless for for taking you really behind the scenes of, of those movies. Um, so all this was kind of coming in at that time, um, but I still didn't really know how to do it. And plus, I didn't know how to wrangle people. It, that's kind of what I wanted to learn at university, really. But then it just... You can't learn... I don't know if you can learn confidence. Can you? Maybe, I mean, some people have it, some people don't. 
can you learn it? You can get more comfortable in a situation which brings confidence, I suppose. I guess that's the same thing as learning it. Ooh, deep. So, uh, but nevertheless, I, um, instead at university, I learned that actually I'm a pretty good writer. Maybe I should stick with that. And that's kind of what I've done ever since. So, I mean, I left university in 2006. Um, that kind of, that kind of drifted. I've drifted through most of my life, to be honest. I mean, who hasn't? But then, they kind of sapped um, my passion for it, really. I mean, I remember showing up to that university course, and the first thing they said to us, right, this course is useless. The only way you're going to make it in the film industry is to go out there and work in it. Whoa, well, right. I mean, you kind of don't take that entirely seriously. You kind of think, well, right. Can I have my money back? Can we go? You know, I mean, what what do you do with that information when you're 21 years old, 18, most of the kids there would have been, you know. So over the, over the two years of that course, they really just sapped any passion or fun out of it. They, that's how I felt anyway. I don't know if everybody else on the course felt the same way, but I certainly did. And the, the people that I spoke to kind of did as well. So, I mean, a few years after that, I just kind of just bummed around a bit. And then um, still wrote little bits, really. Um, I mean, YouTube had become popular by that time. There was a few web series uh, cropping up. The Guild was a was a great show, um, and that kind of inspired me a bit. So I kind of wrote some stuff. I got back in touch with Nick around sort of two thousand nine. Uh, we'd lost touch for a few years. Um, we kind of the trouble with Nick and I is that we. We have these grand ambitions, these grand dreams, but we just dick about, really. You know, we... I think, for us as a partnership, we've always talked a better fight than we've actually fought, you know. Not to say that we're not capable. Nick's done extremely well um, in his vocation as a photographer. Um, extraordinarily well, in fact. Really, really proud of him. Um, but just in terms of what we were wanting to do at the time, which was make these movies and go out there and become uh, whatever the fuck it was we wanted to become, it it just didn't it didn't work out between us there. So then, I had a, kind of a few other things happened. I got in touch with somebody else um, through Nick. In fact, somebody Nick had worked for. He kind of said, "Hey, he worked in TV." He says, "You know, hey, let's write this. Let's write a sitcom." I'm like, "All oh, right, brilliant, yeah." And then he just said, "Oh, by the way, I'm making this documentary on a rapper. Do you want to get involved in that?" So, yeah, sure. All right, we'll put the sitcom on the back burner for now. Then he wanted a bit of fucking cheap labour, basically, and someone to talk at. So that was a year of my life wasted. The sitcom idea just completely went out of the back burner after a couple of months. 
and so I wasted some time there and that hanging around that dude kind of sapped my passion again um, I've always written bits and I've Um, always kind of wanted to go out into film. I've also learned that being on a film set is just boring. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody that has worked on one, everybody's got their own bit to do. But when that bit isn't being done, or when you've done it, and you've just got to wait to do it again a few hours later, it can be fucking boring. So I, I think writing is what I'm, is what I want to stick with, and you know, I, and I have been writing things. Nick put me in touch with somebody else last year who wanted a horror film writing. Um, so I, I wrote a script for her. She didn't like the first draft, so I wrote another one, and she did not read it. Literally, I sent it to her on Facebook Messenger. That message with the, uh, you know, with the with with the link to the document has still not been read six months later. Now, she decided she wanted to make a documentary instead. It's like, well, thanks for wasting my time. But what it did teach me is that I could actually write a fairly decent script quite quickly instead of dawdling about, as I am wont to do. So I've learned that I can do that, and it's got me writing again. Refinding my passion for the films that got me passionate about it in the first place has helped. Doing this podcast, talking to the people, we've, we've not spoken to that many people yet, of course. It's still very early days for this show. Um, but we've got a lot more planned uh, over the next year and however long afterwards. Um, kind of seeing it being done firsthand has helped. And I guess as I get older, I'm 35 tomorrow, I guess I just kind of realise that you've just... You've just got to do it. You've just got to get on with it, really. There is no... Hollywood likes to sell this, this Hollywood dream of the magic. Oh, maybe it could happen to you, but you've got to... You know, it happens to the stars... You've got star quality, you know, you're special. And, you know, it's not, it's not true. It's not something that you are born with. You you know, you watch biographies and things of people, it's like, oh, they were born with it. They were made to do it. Were they fuck? They were shit out of their mother's cunt, just like the rest of us were, and they just had to work at it. Right? You've just got to do it. You've got to graft. You've got to know what you want and you've got to work at it. And that's the truth of it. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be showbiz. You know, maybe you want to be a doctor, a vet. Maybe you want to be a plumber. Maybe you want to um, own your own business selling pegs. You know, whatever it is, it can be done. It might not be easy. You might lose faith in it every now and then. Feel like you want to quit. But then you've just got to kind of look back. Remember what made you want to do it in the first place. Get nostalgic. 
I guess. I read something the other day. Um, it was a list of things that people had been committed to an insane asylum for. I think it might have been specifically what women had been committed to an insane asylum for back in the, I guess, 19th century, 18th century maybe. And uh, nostalgia was on the list. And I kind of know where they're coming from with that. I think that if you do get overcome with nostalgia, it can depress you. Because when something happens to you in your youth, or when something happened to you a while ago, you, you didn't spend your time thinking about it. You know, no, how can I put that? Having a good time, you don't know a lot. You don't know you've had a good time until you've had it. Nobody sits there thinking, I'm so happy. But they can inquire, they can sit there looking back at something and thinking, geez, I was so happy. You know, I think nostalgia is a great thing because it can it can remind you of where you've been. It can maybe it can point you in the right direction of where you're going. But yeah, if you let it overcome you, it can destroy you. I've been I've been prone to that myself. Um, I've spent a good portion of my uh, teens and adult life uh, either living in the past, thinking about the good times, or living in the future, uh, dreaming, daydreaming, but not living in the past. And again, maybe this is the wisdom of age, but you, you've got to you've got to do it now. Even just get started. Last year, well, no, two years ago, twenty sixteen. I went to the doctor. I was feeling down. I, I thought maybe I've got depression. It turns out I sort of had anxiety about uh, being around people, communicating with people. You know, I've never considered myself to be all that good at that, um, which is probably why I was never made to be a director, uh, as I learned at uni. Just don't. It's maybe not even the fact that I'm not good at that. I just don't feel that I am, which leads to an anxiety. Uh, which maybe, I think, led to me suffering with some mild depression or low mood um, because I just hadn't, I'd held back, I hadn't done the things I wanted to do. That was my 2016. So in 2017, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something about this. Um, I'm now training in martial arts. I'm losing a shitload of weight. Um, I've started learning the piano, as you uh, may have heard at the beginning. Not the best example, but uh, it was on the fly. Um, we started the podcast, I'm writing again. You know, it's just... Just do it. Don't worry about where it's leading. You know in your head where you want it to lead, but don't... Don't worry about it. Just do it and enjoy doing it. I didn't mean for this... Uh, this show to become kind of a self-help... Thing. I mean, I could be a cult leader. Yeah, now Manson's dead. There's, you know, there's an opening, right? I don't think I'd kill people. Would I abuse my power? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would. But, yeah, it's, it's early days for that. It's for you to decide if I'm a charismatic leader or not. 
Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, it's a filler episode, uh, because I fucked up. Uh, but you know, maybe it's alright. Let us know. Communicate with us. We're on social media and everything. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want us to do. Tell us what you don't want us to do. Um, do you want me to do more of these? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. You're crazy if you do. I probably won't anyway. Maybe Nick should do one. I don't mean he should do one. Do one, Nick. I mean, he should, maybe he should do one of these. Uh, you know, the world's our oyster. And the world's your oyster too. Thank you very much. This has been Sean from the Podding Shed. No Nick. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking to some people uh, in a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact. Um, so there will definitely be a podcast in March. It will be Nick and Sean. We're going to be talking to people. We're going to be doing everything you love it that we do. Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs>